I bootstrapped the business to almost $30 million in revenue before investors. They somehow caught wind of this thing called Nasty Gal, and I didn't need them to invest. We were fine, but they seemed like really smart people, and I did a lot of research. I bought a book called How to Be Smarter Than Your Venture Capitalist. It seemed like a good deal, but what happened after that is a very kind of like fabled, long story to tell. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Welcome, welcome. This week we are doing a special No Limits crossover episode, and this week it's Girl Boss Radio. You're about to hear from Sophia Amoruso. She's the founder and CEO of Girl Boss. And not only does Sophia have a fantastic podcast of her own, Girl Boss Radio, which I highly recommend. She interviews me in this week's episode, by the way. She's also the definition of a trailblazer. Since publishing her memoir, Girl Boss, four years ago, that hashtag has been used more than 10 million times. And in my opinion, even more importantly than the hashtag, she's helped ignite and continue an honest conversation around leadership, what it really takes to build a business, the real ups and downs of having your own company. And in this episode, we met up with Sophia at her offices in L.A. We talked about everything from her childhood in Sacramento, it was a little ladybird-like, to how she turned an eBay store into a multi-million dollar company. What she learned from watching her life story, or some version of it, becoming a Netflix series. What happened when her business went bankrupt. And what it really means to come out even stronger on the other side. Here's the story of Girlboss and Sophia Amoruso. Sophia Amoruso, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for having us here to your headquarters in L.A. Yes, Silver Lake. This is the cool part of town. People say it's like the Brooklyn of L.A. It's really far east. So most people who work in like big offices in Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, where all the tech companies are, this is quite the hike, but we love it. There's a great breakfast burrito around the corner. Yeah, they have a really good overnight oats that's like pre-made and it's called mush and it's really good. Are you a foodie? I'm a foodie, but I don't eat out that much. I'm like a, my grandma kind of, my my homebodiness kind of usurps my foodiness. But when I travel, I try to go to like, I'm like, what's what's good in New York? What's good in San Francisco? I want to experience that. Let me know when you're in New York. We'll go, okay. we'll go some good places. I would love that. So I look back on your history and when you released the book, Girl Boss, mm-hmm. this was 2014. It was four years ago. This conversation was not happening back then. It wasn't. It, it wasn't. There was Lean In and there was Girl Boss. And Girl Boss was called Lean In for Misfits. And it was like, okay, if that's what you can compare it to. That was a very successful book. Sheryl Sandberg is super impressive. Um, but there was Lean In and there was Girl Boss. And in some ways, in the book world, and I can't attribute this completely to Girl Boss, but it's opened up a category of business books for women who aren't that pedigreed, um, you know, Ivy League educated woman, which I think is a really cool thing. That aside, it is a time for women that wasn't happening in 2014. Your story starts out, you had 10 retail jobs. I don't know how many jobs I had. I had like 
I had jobs to just pay my rent. They weren't. I didn't understand what a career was. Nobody told me about a career. Um, it seemed like something that was like for squares. I mean, my first job was at Subway, and then I just no one really showed me that vision. And you're supposed to pick a lane and go to college, and I just couldn't. I wanted to be a photographer. I mean, that's really what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted my career to be. I really wanted to go to art school. I still want to go to art school. Learning full time is such such a luxury. I would love to do that. I didn't want to go into student debt. It was, you know, I don't even know if anyone would have given me. I mean, I think my credit was just completely wrecked. I'm not sure how that works. Maybe they pardon you. Were you worried to... about money when you say you didn't want to go into student debt? Mm-hmm. Was um, it a part of your consciousness at that point? Debt was always something that I was told is like a really bad thing. I watched my parents go bankrupt and cut up their credit cards in front of me in a credit counselor's office. And I think that has always stuck with me. That being said, yes, I have a mortgage um, and I did have a company that ended up with some debt. Um, So it's something I have a little bit of experience in. But I'm I guess I'm grateful that I'm not super sophisticated in debt. And it's not something that I spend a lot of time thinking about or navigating. You grew up in Sacramento. I grew up in Sacramento. It's a lot like Lady Bird depicts. Were you, is that, was that your relationship with your mom? That wasn't the relationship. I mean, that mom is pretty rough. Um, My mom is really sweet. You know, there's a Netflix series about my life and there's a mom on there who is, my mom is super bummed that uh, the woman that was depicting her role in my life was like had left the family when I was like young and was like an alcoholic and all of these things that my mom is not. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I mean, I wanted to be everything from a marine biologist at some point to, oh man, I mean, I wanted to go to Reed College and do like interdisciplinary studies and just figure it out. But I I always learned in a really different way. And I think navigating the college experience and, you know, picking a lane in terms of a career was something that was always really challenging to me because I am a really curious person and I shifted gears pretty quickly. I would be curious in one thing and I'd, you know, kind of understand that. And then I'd be like, this isn't for me. And I'd move on to the next thing. But I mean, I think starting in high school, I wanted I wanted to be good at something. I didn't just want to be good at something. I wanted to be good at something for my age. Did you want to be the best in the thing? I wanted to be, whether it was like a musician or a guitarist or a photographer, uh, there's only a certain period of time where you can be precocious. There's a certain age where you're no longer precocious. You can be really smart or brilliant or impressive. But I wanted to be precocious and it ended up, I mean, I, I can't say I was precocious at any point, but I ended up being good at something for my age, but it was a eBay store. So I mean, who'd have thought? <laughs> so you're famously, you found this Chanel jacket mm-hmm. for $8? It was $8. Was it really? It was really $8. And I found two and they were both $8. At One, the Salvation Army. At the Salvation Army, I used to sit, I mean, I used to go in there with my Starbucks, uh, what is it? Um, Starbucks, venti soy no water no foam chai kind of thing and i would i mean which cost you more than the jackets probably more than the jackets but i was like subsisting on starbucks and like boston market (laughs) and would you know i was a i was a scavenger and i i would spend hours in there and there was not a single piece of clothing that i left unturned 
it would, if it was the men's department or the little boys department, I would find like a, a navy blazer with little gold buttons that I could call like a shrunken fit, like women's jacket that looked like Band of Outsiders or some like hot brand at the time who was making like, you know, three quarter length sleeves like blazers for women. Um, and yeah, left no piece of vintage unturned and it would wait for these women who worked at the Salvation Army. It was a big Salvation Army out in Pleasant Hill, California, an hour from San Francisco, who not only did I look at everything that was on the racks in that store, I waited until they pushed out shopping carts full of the brand new, not new, but the items that had just come in. Um, And it was weird. They were on to what vintage was, but they would ask $60 for like a faux fur jacket because it looked like something that should be expensive but they like didn't identify yeah two chanel jackets that when i was digging through they were grocery shopping carts they would bring the clothes out and laid flat and when they would go take a handful to hang up uh, i would walk over there and just kind of like flip through and raid the cart and was like a uh, 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 chanel jacket flip flip what another one and did your heart didn't rate? Act, I didn't act too excited. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want them to, you know, good negotiating get tactic. on to. And it probably, you know, I I negotiated at the Salvation Army. I was like, this has a small stain. Can you give me ten percent off? I'm getting this many things. Can you just give me like a bulk rate? Like negotiating at a thrift store. Wow. Um, but that's I respect it. That's where it started. I uh, that reminds me. I was with my grandma um, shopping in Naples, Florida, many years ago now. And I, she found a nightgown. It had a little hole in it. And we walked up to pay for it. And I said to the person at the counter, can we get a discount? And he said, how big of a discount do you want? And I said, 99% off. And he said, okay. Wow. So we got the nightgown for 13 cents. But my grandparents from that point forward were like, you need to talk to our roofer. You need to talk to wow. the utility company because they thought I was going to negotiate. I it should was, have been it just happened. You just have to ask for it. You See, don't get what you, you don't ask know. for. Yeah. Did you okay? So, and I want to cover that idea, by the way, negotiating around salary and ideas. Um, but I want to come back to you finding the Chanel jackets. You post them on eBay. This is the beginning of Nasty Gal. Mm-hmm. This was Nasty Gal Vintage. This was my eBay store. I posted the Chanel jacket, and you know, and made it clear it was a Chanel jacket, and took photos that I thought were really beautiful of it. And put it up on eBay and a woman from London and a woman from Australia and a woman from New York all duked it out over the course of 10 days for it and eventually sold for over $1,000. And, oh my gosh, I went to dry clean it because I wanted it to just be perfect for the woman who bought it. And I took it to the local dry cleaner. And, I mean, this is like an 80s, like probably 80s vintage Chanel jacket and the buttons are, you know, were made at that time and they're Chanel buttons. They lost one of the buttons in the dry cleaner. I searched high and low in every machine, under every machine. They completely lost one of the buttons. I was so upset and I had to tell the customer that one of the buttons had been lost because I really wanted to have it be pristine for her at the dry cleaner. That's the only thing that's wrong with it. And I had to call and Beverly Hills just seemed like this like place that didn't really exist. It seemed like the wizard, like the land of Oz or uh, I don't know, like the never ending story, whatever that land is just 
uh, this place that didn't really exist and now whatever. <laughs> I've been to Beverly Hills many times. Uh, there's a lot of therapists over there. <laughs> but um, called the Chanel store there and told them what had happened. And they said, send us a photo of the button. We have an archive. And I had to, no, no, no. They had me mail. I had, to, I had to cut off another button and mail it to them for them to match it. So that was even scarier, putting another one of those buttons in the mail when, I mean, $1,050 minus $8 was like my profit on this thing. And that was like, that was so much money to me at the time for one item. And it worked out. They found another button. They sent it back to me in like a beautiful kind of box with tissue paper and I got it sewn back on and the lady was very happy with her jacket. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. How did you go from there to building out Nasty Gal? What was the timetable like between those first sales and then bridging Nasty Gal into something even bigger that went beyond the eBay store? Yeah, I mean... Everything that I've done in my career has been in response to some signal that I'm onto something. Um, and I wouldn't have pursued eBay had it not been clear that there was a demand for what I was doing. I was increasingly better at curating these goods that people, for some reason, you know, gravitated toward the brand I'd created with a very, like, un kind of unsavory or like even repellent name but it was, it was just something you at the time it was too. just me and it was something you couldn't forget nasty gal vintage everything else was like you know lady in the dust you know it was like hippy dippy <laughs> vintage and i was like nasty gal and um did and you when you came up with that name did you ask anyone else what they thought of it before you used it honestly i'm not sure I liked it. My boyfriend at the time liked it. It was the name of an album by a woman named Betty Davis that I really loved. And I feel like it spoke to the attitude of the brand. And I didn't think I was building a brand, but all the things that you do to curate the clothing, choose the model, style the model, the model's attitude, the way you describe the product, the graphic design. I mean, I learned Photoshop enough to make a tiny graphic that I coded with basic HTML into my eBay listing template. All of those things combined. I was also looking at the cues of other brands that were, you know, maybe Nylon Magazine or these other very cool kind of up-and-coming publications or brands or, you know, a lot of Australian fashion was coming up at that time. And, you know, I was, I'm a millennial and I had been sold things and it was very, it was the very beginning of brands talking and acting like real people. And that's kind of a given now. That's something that we see even the biggest companies, Toyota, you know, Prius commercials, there's like a ukulele and we're all buddies. It wasn't like that. It was a big company coming down from the, you know, mountaintop and saying like, buy our stuff. Um, and I had, a, you know, the brand had a very different voice, one that met our audience halfway, um, that spoke in her language, that was very conversational, disarming. And, you know, that's that's my voice. That's the voice of Girl Boss. That's what's continued in the history of my career. But as far as going from an eBay store to a full-blown business, you know, I didn't I didn't anticipate my eBay store becoming my career. I was like, how long is this going to last? And then it kept growing and my auctions became more and more and more demand. And eventually my average, you know, order value was $150 on something I probably spent no more than $20 to acquire. And I was like, wow, you know, this is growing. I'm onto something. I have a good quality of life, but 
I I want to do something bigger. I don't want to rely on this platform. eBay was a great place for me to learn how to sell online. They have this framework for you. And there's so many more of those tools now. Mm-hmm. There's Squarespace and Shopify and Etsy and you know, Stripe. None of these things existed. Building an e-commerce website back then was like what kind of random, you know, e-com platform can I cobble together to make a website? And eBay was a place that had rules. It was a place where I was competing with other people, where my audience that I was bringing in from the MySpace audience that I had cultivated was coming to eBay and it was my traffic. But then at the bottom of my listing, it was like more from other sellers. And I was like, why should I benefit all these other people? I think I was like maybe a little bit too greedy. But I was like, I want to own my audience. I want my brand to be fully represented in the environment that it, you know, that it lives in. And so I decided to leave eBay and launch this website. And it just sold out right away. Whoatware.com covered it. Daily Candy covered it. And I didn't have a publicist. These editors were just customers of mine. And um, it, you know, it, it, it blew up from there. So our first year of business, just our, my year of business, I think we did, I did $70,000 in revenue, which to me was like, I don't even think I'd had like a, I don't even know what it is. Is it a W2? I, <laughs> I don't think I had made more than like 25 grand in a year jumping from job to job. And uh, there's my business. And I didn't take a salary out of this. I didn't take, I mean, I paid for my living expenses, but I had no wants. You know, I eventually saved up and bought a Nissan. But it, it was years on Do end. Do you still drive the Nissan? I don't. I drive a very different car now. Um, it's a, it's like a private plane on wheels. It's like L.A. You know, it's just like a bubble, like bopping around L.A. I should probably drive a Tesla, but only when I wear this one, drive it into the ground. But uh, I had no wants. I was 23, 24 years old as all of this was happening. I think it was on eBay for about a year and a half before I uh, launched the website. And 70 grand, 250 grand the next year, 1.1 million the next year. We started buying non-vintage goods that we could buy inventory into, a small, medium, and a large. And that became a quote-unquote pivot, and it allowed us to quote-unquote scale, even though I didn't, didn't really know what those things meant. I just knew I didn't – I could sell five things by taking one photo instead of one thing, uh, and that seemed like a pretty good deal. When did you start hiring? Uh, my first employee was maybe a year and a half in. Um I had a part-timer and then I hired a full-time kind of assistant, vintage retail kind of. She shipped orders, responded to emails, did things like measure the clothing before we put it in the store, steamed clothing, did the things that weren't essential to building the audience. I kept doing social media, photography, styling, buying, all the things that uh, were super essential. And she ended up staying with me for about, gosh, six or seven years. Uh, it was a Craigslist listing and she was the one person I interviewed. Wow. That's such an important thing, though. I mean, deciding when to start hiring, uh, it can really be the difference between success and failure. Who you hire obviously has a huge mm-hmm. influence on that as well. Um, how did you know, though? What What was the thing that said, I need to hire now? I think when the demand is something you can't keep up with anymore, I worked 24 hours straight for a few weeks and, you know, almost I think I maybe had pneumonia at some point. I just I was really killing myself. And 
at the time she was like she had a job and she needed full-time work and I was like oh my gosh I don't know if I can afford that and I paid her something like $16 an hour when I was paying myself like I don't know 12 or something and I was like oh my gosh full-time this is a big commitment I don't know if I can afford this and as soon as I made that commitment you know I like to talk about Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail and he steps out onto the bridge that you can't really see and takes the leap of faith, that's when you're able to manifest great things and you're willing to kind of, it's not a layup, but I don't I don't know how you describe it, but you take those risks and sometimes it doesn't work out, but it's only if you take those risks then that like bigger things can manifest as a result. When did you decide to start bringing in venture financing? Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. When did you decide to start bringing in venture financing? Yeah, so we I bootstrapped the business to almost $30 million in revenue before investors started showing wow. up. So we were profitable. Um, How it, many employees did you have when you were $30 million? I don't know, maybe 15, 20. Um, I had some people shipping stuff. I had a few customer care people, one person processing inventory that was inbound. I did have an early COO, but I didn't pay him a ton we had an hr manager we had one person doing like marketing stuff one graphic designer i think we did actually have like a we had a controller and a planner but there weren't any like proper merchants yet like buyers who understood retail math that was just all gut um i had oh man it was like, you know, I moved to L.A. after a year and a half of, you know, at that time I moved to L.A. with 12 people. And then we kept our warehouse fulfillment center functions up in the Bay Area until we eventually moved it to L.A. and then moved it to Kentucky. But venture capitalists came knocking when they somehow caught wind of this thing called Nasty Gal. Uh, and I didn't need them to invest. We were fine. Um, but they seem like really smart people. And I did a lot of research. I bought a book called How to Be Smarter Than Your Venture Capitalist. And I'm not sure if I was – I'll ever maybe – I mean, I'm, I guess I'm smart. But there's a lot to learn about venture capital even now as I'm raising money. And um, it seemed like a good deal to sell a small percentage of the company for – $40 million. You know, I still owned most of the company. I controlled the board. The risk was pretty low. Um, but what happened after that is a very kind of like fabled long story to to tell. What are some of the highlights of that fabled long story? Raise $40 million, shock to the system, company has no infrastructure, try to grow by $100 million in a year. So we That tried, was the venture capitalist yeah, who wanted you to grow by We tried to go million. from 28 to 128. We hired 100 people. 
They had very little guidance. They all showed up at the same time. It was like the Tower of Babel. We raised at a $350 valuation. That that was our first money in, in 2012. And when we tried to raise money after that, e-commerce, we were kind of e-commerce 1.5. We were One King's Lane, Fab.com, Beachment, these companies that none of them survived. One King's Lane did, but um, it wasn't a great time. Once all of that happened, it was it was a lot more challenging to raise venture capital for an e-commerce business. And uh, and then we began having conversations with private equity guys. And then we weren't profitable once all of that had happened. And it just became this really challenging environment uh, to navigate to continue funding the business. And I had this very complicated culture that I hadn't grown intentionally. I didn't know what culture was. I'd never worked in an office. I didn't, you know, it, it exploded and I was very young and... Um, and I didn't really know how to hold the company accountable. And a, a lot of things happen, most of which I'll probably never know. What were you? That's an interesting thing. What, what when you say that, what do you mean by that? People, like things were happening outside of you and conversations were happening that you weren't aware of? Absolutely. You know, there's executives that I hired that had way more visibility into the business, a lot more experience than I did. I, you know, my conversations with them were limited to my understanding and the learning curve. So you were curve. kind of the founder and they were the people talking to your venture capitalists and getting marching orders and setting the tone for the business. I fully delegated putting board decks together, the finances of the company. I didn't understand the finances of the company. And people expect that a founder or CEO, I guess I was both of those things, knows everything that's happening in a company. They look they look at you and they say, of course, you know this. Of course, these, you know, these things are happening you know, under the hood. And that's not the case. There's no way for any executive in any company to have a full grip on what's happening. Um, the best thing you can do is create an environment where there's, you know, transparency in what's happening and people are um, given guidelines for what they should be doing. You hire people that are really autonomous and um, understand what the goals of the company are. And, um, but I don't think I understood any of that at 24, 25 years old when I had an eBay store that exploded. How are you feeling as as all of this was sort of happening? Did you have an awareness that things were trending in a negative direction? Eventually, yeah. I mean, we tried to go from 28 to $128 million in revenue. And, and when that didn't happen, I mean, we didn't base that plan in any history we had no history to base these kind of predictions on and i really didn't understand what signing a 500,000 square foot lease meant <laughs> which we did in kentucky and thought we'd just grow super quickly into it and everything would just keep like you know hockey sticking in, in terms of growth and that's just not always how it works and yeah uh, the board meetings started to become more challenging but i don't think I don't know if we were challenged as much as we could have been. And I honestly didn't know how to respond to a lot of the challenges that came up. Was there a feeling that this baby that you had created was being torn away from you or? I felt there were times where I felt like a lamb led to slaughter. Like, I can't escape this. I can't quit. I can't be fired. I'm being held accountable for things I don't understand. I didn't intend. But now I'm being like criticized for. And held accountable for um, things, 
you know, it's like what you do intentionally is as important as what happens unintentionally. And sometimes you don't really know what the effect of those things are going to be. And you learn through experience. You learn from what when you're winning, it seems like you're responsible for all of that. Like you can take credit for it. Like, wow, you're really smart. You're such a great business person because things are all looking good. And then you realize that's not always the case. You can you can create a lot of value. You can build a great business. You can get really far in your career and then have your ass handed to you and just realize like that was a good time, but there were things lurking that I didn't know and now those are being exposed to me. What do I do with it? When the company ultimately files for bankruptcy, what what was your mentality at that point? I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, but t- after 10 years of hard work, my enti- I like to say my entire youth, but 22 to 32, uh, the only thing I had done in my adult life, uh, the thing that at the last two, almost three years of my career, I felt completely trapped in, unable to make change, positive change within, had been through many a PR crisis, layoffs, uh, reports of toxic culture, all the things that like I never could have anticipated. I was taking advice from HR experts and employment attorneys and all of these people who said, like, this is what you should be doing. And in retrospect, there's a lot of things that I wouldn't have done the same. But I was held accountable regardless. By the time we filed, I was ready to build Girlboss. It had been three years since the book came out. We filed on the day Trump was elected. And it became really clear that this was an even more important time for women. And the book I had written three years prior was... uh, something that was a conversation that I needed to to carry on. Our audience had carried it on for us when we founded Girlboss a year ago. There was 3 million uses of hashtag Girlboss on Instagram, and now there's over 10 and a half. Um, and so the conversation's been growing, and um, it feels amazing to start over and not be burdened by the legacy of the decisions that I didn't even make. You You mentioned that there were some things you would do differently. Is there one thing that if you could go back and do it differently, you would do? There's a million things I would have done differently. <laughs> I wouldn't have fired people without telling them they weren't performing. I did I did a lot of that. Because employment attorneys told you, don't tell them that they're not performing? Nope, because I was impatient and I was told very early in my career, hire slow, fire fast. Uh, and in retrospect, I could have been a more, more proactive manager. I could have been more a more proactive leader. I could have been um, someone who helped coach people to get there, but because I didn't know how to get there, because I had never had that job or a job for that matter, I wasn't really capable of that. And by the time someone who wasn't performing or was toxic to the culture was like, because I didn't know how to coach them in that regard, by the time I came, like realized that it was so wrong or damaging the company that this person was still in the company, I felt like I had to just make a decision really quickly because that damage became exponential with every day that that person remained at the company. And there's so many things that I could have done proactively to avoid a lot of the things that happened that I didn't know any better not to do. Was there a retrospective that you sort of put yourself through and said, look backwards, evaluate and think about how the next thing is going to be built differently? 
I think I internalized all of the advice I got along the way, but didn't know how to implement. You know, you don't make change in your life when someone says, stop biting your nails, or you should stop picking your face, which I'm trying to, I'm figuring out how to, nope, I'm not figuring out how to do. Well, why would you ever give that up? I know, that's such a blast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But... You stop biting your nails when you're ready to stop biting your nails. You start exercising when you're ready to start exercising. You stop ordering Pad Thai Postmates when you're ready to stop <laughs> ordering Pad Thai Postmates, which I'm not ready to do. Um, nobody- there have been three Pad Thai references in the span of <laughs> I know. a very short I'm a really sophisticated here. lady. I'm a big Pad Thai fan <laughs> myself. I'm just giving myself like flack for doing it, um, but it was a... It wasn't a low moment. I just really, I deserved it. You like I, pad thai. I don't like it that much. I just, <laughs> I ate it yesterday and it was somehow the highlight of my weekend. But um, I I listened to all the advice, but it was, it didn't land. I wasn't at the time in my life where it was ready to land. And this new company, you know, it didn't, it, it wasn't, yes, there's been a lot of thinking and talking about what I want to do differently in this company, but I didn't stop. You know, I got up, we filed November 8th or whatever the date was, and we held our first conference with 500 women and 50 speakers in March of 2017. We did our second in November of 2017. We just had our third here in LA. And it was you and Gwyneth Paltrow taking the lead. We did that. That's pretty cool. It was cool. She's become... A bit of like a buddy. I don't even know how we were initially connected. And um, she's a great entrepreneur. She's a really smart woman. Um, I think there's a few people in the public eye who came out of entertainment who have been as close to their businesses as she has. She really knows her stuff. Um, and so it's a pleasure to interview her um, and building. I mean, Goop has been around for 10, 10 years now since she started that newsletter. And um, there's also not a lot of women entrepreneurs, at least who have raised venture capital, who have been in it that long. And I think that's a really interesting thing because, again, it's easy to celebrate when you're like killing it. Um, but it takes that long to really experience like the highs and lows of building a business. Uh, and so I don't really take breaks between things to lick my wounds or reflect or, you know, you strike while the iron's hot. There's windows of opportunity that exist in your career. And a lot of it comes out with the wash. You expect to just sit around and kind of like, you know, meditate on a, on a mountain and f- figure out what, what went wrong. And that's not really how it works. You figure out what went wrong by applying what went wrong into doing it right. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? I think just holding people accountable. And that's not doesn't mean like handholding or, you know, lording over them. It just means like people look, people need structure and they want guidance. And I used to think that was like insulting to tell people how they could improve or what they needed to do because I'm like a very, I'm very hard on myself and I find those things for myself and I'm, I'm not someone who's good at building structure. I'm not a process person. I can create enough structure for myself to get my job done or at least what I perceive that job to be at a given time. Uh, And so I don't necessarily relate to that in the same regard. And so it's been hard for me to intuit and understand and develop the muscle that allows me to give people freedom to run, but also make sure that the things that we said a month ago were going to happen are actually happening. It doesn't matter how senior someone is. 
um, everybody looks for that. And I used to, I hired a bunch of C-level executives and was like, you've been in a career longer than I've been alive. You're going to write your job description every day when you show up. And of course, you're going to hold yourself accountable because like, you know, way more than I do. And that was a really naive thing to do. You seem to really know yourself. Was that always the case or have you figured it out along the way through introspection? Um, I'm an only child. And so things that would be natural for someone else, I have to like evaluate and be like, is this normal? Was I weird? Because, you know, it's just you don't have that mirror when you're a kid that someone who has siblings does. Um, And so I've I and I also had a very critical father and I think he instilled a voice in me that is very critical. And I've turned into a positive voice, but one where I'm constantly peeling back another layer of the onion, so to speak. And I'm just constantly asking advice to the point of it being annoying. I'm constantly asking people if, like, I'm an, I'm a good person. Did I send that email? Was that well constructed? How are they going to feel about that? Um, I care a lot about how I'm perceived. And you could say, and, and I care a lot about my relationships. And, and you could say that's, like, a really great noble thing. But it's also really selfish and narcissistic in that, like, I want to feel good about myself. I don't have the energy to have tension in my life. I don't have the energy to lie to people. I don't. It's just like it's much easier to live that way. And um, and I work really hard to feel like a good person at the end of the day. You mentioned looking for advice all the time. What's the worst advice you've received? I guess it's probably hire slow, fire fast. Really? How do you fire somebody? Oh, gosh. Well, not the way I used to. I How haven't... did you used to? Do... <laughs> How would you fire me if you were firing me right now, if we, if I walk in the room? Oh, Hi, Sophia. I've asked people this question. It really sucks to be put on the spot with this. I I mean, in the past, it would have been like, I probably would have waited for them to quit. Um, and it just would have been so uncomfortable. You know, people self-select out. Um, hopefully they do it before it becomes really uncomfortable how would i fire you oh my gosh um well you'd be a huge asset to our team so i probably wouldn't (laughs) fire you um i mean today i'd say like rebecca we've had a lot of conversations about um your work here and as we've discussed you know this may not be a fit and (laughs) uh you may have benefited a certain point but the company's changed and um I don't know. I don't know. Well, I don't Sophia, even want to think. Gonna there's no one really, here. A massive buyout. Um, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh my god. I regret a lot of those decisions. Um, so that's like I've internalized that a lot. Like I feel like a bad person because of some of the things that like happened. That I just that was what I was told to do. Like sit there and not say like have any humanity and just keep it not say I'm sorry, just super clinical, really brief. Let them like process it and just be like what the traditional HR manager would tell you to do. And um, that's I don't know. It's like putting someone in a lab and it's just weird. It's just it's sterile and clinical and inhuman and all the things that you don't want someone's experience on the job to be. I messed up a lot of things doing that. Hiring slow is good, but firing fast probably isn't if you aren't 
And Patty McCord, as I mentioned, was on my a recent episode of Girl Boss Radio, and it was just like it was so enlightening. And if you're firing someone with no indi- like without having given them any indication that they were not performing, that's when you get sued. Like it's when someone's dignity is removed and they aren't being told over a period of time, like this this isn't working. Like let's see over the course of a certain period of time and you're updating them and it's just it's a really awful thing to do to not give somebody that kind of visibility into why they may lose their job so that they can grow from it and I think I misinterpreted what that advice meant and maybe it does mean fast but maybe not quite as fast as I uh I I took I took it how old were you when you got that advice? The first oh, 22. Time. 22 years old. First advice. And one of the, some of the first advice I ever got. And it was from a venture capitalist or? It was from someone who I really actually do respect and who was really helpful to the company, who was a consultant in the very early days. So I ask this question of everyone at the end of the interview, and I find a lot of the time the worst advice, it's not coming from somebody who's trying to harm you. It's coming from someone who's trying to help you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on No Limits. Uh, thank you for having me. For anyone who's listening right now, you should absolutely check out Sophia's Girl Boss Radio podcast. Thank you. What a great conversation. Thank you, Sophia. And by the way, reminder, head on over to Girl Boss Radio for the crossover episode where Sophia interviews me this week. Uh, before we go, it is time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Jen Marilla. Jen is the founder of The Social Girl Traveler, and we met when I was speaking at the Mary Claire Sustainability Forum a few months back. She came up immediately after we were done, and within a few seconds of meeting her, I wanted to share her story. Jen told me that she's an impact travel influencer. The day after we met, Jen was on her way to Nepal bringing clean water filters and shoes to orphans. And what I love about Jen's story is not only what she's doing, but how she cleverly figured out how to pay for the whole thing. Here she is to explain. Hey guys, my name is Jen, the social girl traveler. I call myself an impact travel influencer because I've been traveling the globe with clean water filters and bringing them to third world countries. I've impacted an estimate of 13,000 lives. I not only do that, but I also build homes and work in orphanages. I've been doing this for the past three years and I've been to over 42 countries across the globe. I love what I do. I left my New York City corporate job to pursue a passion and a social mission. Jen, you're blowing us away. Three years, 42 countries, 13,000 people, incredible work. And the fact that brands are paying you to help create this content while you're traveling, outstanding. Congratulations. I really admire what you're doing. I'm wishing you continued success. And I can't wait for people to check out your whole story on my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis. Also, don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, you can come up to me at a conference or you can send me an email at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. Also, send me your career questions there. We really appreciate hearing from all of you. I read all of your mail. I know how busy we all are. And when you write, it means the world. I also want to say thank you to those of you who have been leaving us reviews, like JJ123-6324, who says... 
finally a podcast for us to listen to about inspirational women, women who have drive and motivation, who want to do something with their lives. This podcast could not have come at a better time. Thanks, JJ. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use our hashtag No Limits Podcast. Also, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Michelle Boncardo, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones.